Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? We will take it easy on the memes. It's Wednesday, August 19th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night's DNC featured John Kerry, Colin Powell, and Chuck Schumer all making the case that Donald Trump is unfit and Joe Biden would be the preferable choice for president. It shows that men in their 60s, 70s, and 80s all agree that 77-year-old Joe Biden is it. By the way, let's play a game. John Kerry, Colin Powell, Chuck Schumer. Which one's in his 60s? Which one's in his 70s? And who's in his 80s? All right, now look to the bottom of your podcast player and turn it upside down for the answer. No, there is no such technology, or at least it's still in Tim Cook's beta testing mode. Chuck Schumer is in his 60s, 69, John Kerry, 76, and Colin Powell, 83. So you know what that means? That the age difference between Colin Powell and Chuck Schumer is the same as the age difference between Chuck Schumer and Kamala Harris. But the focus wasn't on the old guard last night. It was on the young bucks. Only it wasn't much of a focus. As 17 fresh-faced elected Democrats combined to say generally bland and obvious words. But here's the thing. Those words were said often in unison and via cell phone. And when you pay into Social Security and Medicare, you deserve to know it will be there when you retire. And that's why we ran. And thanks to the voters across the country, in both red states and blue states, we we won. won. At first, I didn't realize it took me a while for it to hit. I was confused. And then it dawned on me, this this is the the keynote keynote address? So I switched to the Lakers game, the Trailblazers game. A rerun of Rick and Morty. Yeah, but I felt a little guilty. So I switched back. And the roll call was sweet, though the guys from Michigan were about to ask what it'll take to get me into one of those cherry Dodge DeSotas. And Pete Buttigieg was reenacting the scene from The Usual Suspects where Pete Postlewaite is threatened in an abandoned office building. And then Jill Biden spoke. Still, Joe always told the boys, Mommy sent Jill to us. And how could I argue with her? Well, you could point out that the entire conceit posits supernatural forces by which a dead woman replaces herself with a different younger woman to mother her young sons and serve as a companion to their father, raising unsettling questions of an omnipotent deity who would allow or even orchestrate such a combination of bloodlust and just plain lust. But I get it. It's a sweet thing to tell the kids. I'm just here to answer the rhetorical question, how could I argue with her? Maybe the better answer is you can't because... Sadly, she passed away. 
Overall, the second night of the convention was an entire night of television programming that was, of course, decided upon, poured over, strategized, and executed. And yet it wasn't even the event within the last two or three days that is moving Democrats the most. That thing is the mailboxes. Heather Walker of Grand Rapids, Michigan, WOOD News, is on the scene in the back of a post office reporting on a mail sorter that seems to be sitting on a loading dock. In addition to that, there's also a dumpster right there. And according to an employee that works across the way, they tell me that that dumpster has been filled three times since last week with parts and pieces of what we're being told are the mail sorting machines. I do not know if there is a concerted slowdown at the post office. I do know that the post office denies it. I'll read from Kim Frum, senior public relations representative. The Postal Service reviews collection box density every year on a routine basis. Based on that density testing, boxes are identified for potential removal and notices are placed on boxes. Given the recent customer concern, the Postal Service will postpone removing boxes for a period of 90 days. Now, It's 2020, and it's Donald Trump's America. So I just couldn't read that statement by Kim Frum without asking myself, Kim Frum, who is this Kim Frum? And I did some research. I found a Kim Frum who was one spokeswoman for Maryland Comptroller Peter Franchot, who is a Democrat. So maybe that checks out. Maybe Kim Frum isn't a Trumpist. Then I read an article on Boston.com where they too bore witness about mailbox removal. And it said, quote, Friday, the U.S. Postal Service clarified the practice is a regular procedure for replacing worn down boxes. USPS spokesman Steve Dougherty told Boston.com boxes that are rusted in need of repair or tagged with graffiti are brought into the services shop for repair and new ones are installed to replace them. All right, fine. But who is this Steve Dougherty? Is he trustworthy? Is he a political hack? Is he the Kaylee McEnany of mail? LinkedIn showed a Steve Dougherty who had 27 years experience with the U.S. Postal Service and is also a town meeting member and town moderator in Saugus, Massachusetts. He additionally is the bulletin editor and webmaster for a local Elks Lodge. Mm-hmm. And we should believe you why, Deep State Steve. Anyway, I'm sure the removal of mailboxes in Massachusetts is not a cornerstone of a presidential election year ploy. But I also know that some good conspiracy theorizing by citizen sleuths documenting misdeeds for themselves and posting pictures on social media really, really animates people. It's a godsend for the Republicans. So why not have some of that energy for the Democrats? And there is, of course, more than a whiff of believability to Donald Trump using the post office to execute his nefarious means. Of course, the idea of the whiff of believability, that's what the QAnon folks said about the child sex ring at Comet Ping Pong. But the point is, we were supposed to see a period of Democrats getting all riled up and getting animated and getting roused and calling on their friends and neighbors to take notice. And that actually is happening during this, the week of the convention, only it's not happening because of the convention. It's happening because of mailboxes. Yes, that's right. Donald Trump is stealing the mail. Is stealing the mail? Donald Donald Trump Trump is trying trying to to steal steal the the mail. mail. 
on the show today. It's all Michelle Goldberg all the time. We don't look back at night two. That happened as much as we look forward. Also, we both try not to talk at the same time. New York Times, Michelle Goldberg up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The second night of the DNC is in the books and Calamari won. Let's talk about not just what's coming ahead, but what I really wanted to talk about is what a presidency of Joe Biden might look like, what the world might look like, even if Joe Biden doesn't become president exactly on election day. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg. She is a columnist for the New York Times. She is on their The Argument podcast, which is an excellent jam. Hello, Michelle. Thanks for joining me. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to ask you, first, let me tell you a little bit of my thoughts and then get you to react. And the thought is on the question of how much will this help Joe Biden's chances of getting elected? You know, the politics questions around the convention. And I got to say, I think some, but I really don't know. And the reason I don't know is it's like if we had a four-day political convention based on the premise, does gravity exist? (laughs) Yeah, I guess there are some, there are some speakers who are better than others to convince you gravity exists. I suppose we could argue about who are the exciting young faces of gravity exists versus the older, maybe disquieting faces of, of course, gravity exists. But I can't really make a good analysis of who's best to present the argument that gravity exists uh, versus gravity doesn't exist. But what's your take? Do you think these last few days are helping Joe Biden? And do you really have any way of evaluating that given that, you know, I think you and I both think that there is reality and then there is Trump? So I don't think I don't know that there's any way for us to evaluate how this is playing with people who pay so much less attention to politics than we do. And right. It's impossible. It's just kind of it ends up just being a form of theater criticism. Look, I think that having multi hour advertisements for your candidate on television on multiple days is an objectively good thing. And you also see in some of the focus groups that I've read about a lot of people who don't like Trump say they don't say they just don't know very much about Joe Biden, right? And so there's when I've heard from people who do this professionally, they'll say that there's a real need to kind of define Joe Biden before Trump can can define him. And that as much as people like us might love the, you know, the Lincoln Project ads that just kind of tear Trump apart, that actually something that would be really useful are just ads about who Joe Biden is and sort of making an affirmative case for him. So if this was a normal convention, I would be super scared of like 1968 type shit, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I was at the convention in 2016 and, you know, a lot of it came off really well. It was much better done than Donald Trump's sort of like apocalyptic shit show, which tells you something about how much conventions matter. But the one thing you saw is a lot of, you know, Bernie dead enders chanting in the arena, a lot of dissension, you know, which was what I think Russian intelligence intended when it, you know, leaked the hacked emails about um, the then chairwoman of the DNC. And so 
in a way, um, I mean, the, the, the kind of irony of this virtual convention sort of political telethon is that on the one hand, you see a lot more ordinary people, but the DNC actually has and the, and the Biden campaign has much, much more control over everything, right? right? Like nobody can disrupt right. it. So one point of emphasis, apart from advancing the biographical details of Joe Biden that the Democrats would like emphasized, is to fault President Trump on specific grounds. And maybe not the grounds that the Lincoln Project is faulting him on, mostly that he's a poor manager and that he's bungling his job. And I've seen a lot of studies and evidence that say that is the resonant way to criticize Trump. I mean, there are so many legitimate ways to criticize him. It's It seems hard to pick a bad one, but actually for the kind of imagined person that we're having these four days for, the fact that this guy is just not competent in his job is a much better critique than this guy broke the law this guy hates norms, this guy is a racist, this guy is a cruel person. Do you agree with, I mean, I don't know if you've seen those studies, but do you agree that that's a more salient line of attack than some of the alternatives? Um, Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that we've seen, you know, and it's been a little bit, not a little bit, it's been profoundly depressing to see that, you know, kind of Americans writ large are maybe less invested in the procedures of democracy than a lot of us thought. Right. So it's very, you know, so Donald Trump can kind of shred norms and behave in this autocratic way. And it's pretty hard to get traction on some of these like, quote unquote, process questions. There was support for impeachment. There was more people supported it than opposed it. But, you know, you didn't have people on the streets in the way you had when people are actually, you know, dying. We'll we'll see what that means when they try to use these process questions to sabotage the election. Right. But that's in the future. So, yeah, I do. And I also think that if you were kind of thought that racism was disqualifying, you were opposed to Trump a long time ago, right? The the sort of people, the the remaining voters, the people who are remain to be persuaded almost by definition, that's not what's going to do it for them. And but there's people all over this country whose lives are being ruined, right? My life has been ruined. I have every privilege in the world, but my life is fucking horrible because I can't send my kids to school. I can't see my friends. And, you know, this is true of all kinds of people. It's why I do think it was very effective uh, um, for Jill Biden to do her speech in a classroom, right? It reminds you of of what we have so tangibly lost. And so I do think that people are very hungry. People, I think, feel in a way that maybe they didn't feel a year ago that the country's a fucking disaster. And I think I think that there is going to be tangible hunger out there for somebody who can just um, fix it. Yeah. Now, here's the question, though. I think they're making their case uh, on managerial terms, on pragmatic terms, that Trump is horrible, and they're making Biden seem to be an acceptable alternative, maybe an eager alternative. And even beyond that, I think they are communicating. And if you met Joe Biden on an Amtrak, you'd probably have a decent enough conversation with him. I have no idea what they're telling me 
that Joe Biden's policies are going to be. Sure, he won't manage a, a crisis as disastrously as Trump. And because I know a little bit about politics, I'm sure that he'll do the reversal of the reversal of DACA and things like that. But I don't know what the classic first day in office promise is. I don't know what the first hundred day agenda is tangibly. I can't tell you if all goes well at the end of their first term, what the Biden signature piece of legislation was the equivalent of the Affordable Care Act. Do you know the answers to those questions? I think I do. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that the most important thing right now would be some sort of recovery act, right? That's going to go presumably further than Obama went in his recovery act when they still believed in the possibility of getting kind of Republican support if they kept the total price tag under $1 trillion, right? I think that what they're going to focus on initially is both, you know, a kind of national strategy to address the pandemic, which is so basic that it almost seems to go without saying, but it's something that we don't have now, right? So a national strategy to address the pandemic and then some sort of national economic, you know, rescue project um, with... If you look at the details, there's a, a whole kind of agenda about funding, you know, not just providing universal child care, but sort of funding care infrastructure, because so often when people talk about, you know, these kind of big public works programs, they think about, you know, construction and a lot of, you know, maybe jobs that are traditionally coded as male, right? There's a, a lot of money, at least in his plan, for jobs that are traditionally done by women. You know, so I think that those will be the things that they start with. And again, it's like, it seems pretty obvious, but they're things that aren't being done right now. So Elizabeth Warren, who you supported and uh, disclosure, your husband worked for, put forward many big structural changes. And Bernie Sanders had a lot of ideas. And the conception is, and I think it's an accurate one, that the Joe Biden of 2020 has heard them and will, to some extent, absorb these ideas into his administration. Picking Kamala Harris, who was on board with uh, all, if not most, of the ideas seems to be an indication of that. But what parts of Bernie's plans or Warren's plans or any of the other big progressive swings out there do you think he's going to go for? Is he going to go for free public college? Is he going to go for debt relief? Is he going to go for, I don't know, any of the other parts of a very progressive agenda? I think they're going to go for student debt forgiveness. I think that they will probably go for some sort of free public college. You know, they will definitely go for a public option, which is obviously not Medicare for all. But if you think back, um, you know, in 2008 or 2009, um, a public option was the farthest less left position sort of, you know, in the, I guess, what would you say, the Overton window, right? And so, you know, that's, I don't think that's because Joe Biden is person of the left or has become a convert. It's just because Joe Biden has always sort of placed himself in the center of the Democratic Party and the center of the Democratic Party is far to the left of where it was um, when he was vice president. And then the other thing is that I think, you know, something that I think we're seeing with Donald Trump is, you know, and this isn't an original observation, right? But just like personnel is policy. 
So the fact that you're going to have all of these smart, eager, idealistic, progressive technocrats flooding into the government, it's just going to start making things work in a way that things have been systematically sabotaged for the last three and a half years. Yeah. So his candidacy, and this is going to sound like a critique, but actually it's what I'm looking for in candidates is any competent Democrat who could win. And by the way, that's essentially why Joe Biden won the nomination. Yeah, no, I think his people said he didn't have a message, but he actually he did. Right. His message was America is a great country full of great people that used to lead the world that has now been you know, kind of endangered and degraded by this terrible man. And we're going to bring it back to what it was and make it better, right? It's a very simplistic message. And it's maybe not the message that young progressives want to hear. It's not a message of big structural change. But I do think for it's a pretty appealing message um, for the sort of people who, you know, aren't on political Twitter. Although that is me, again, sort of ventriloquizing is that how you say it? Ventriloquizing people who um, be now, yes, <laughs> right? People whose who's politics um, I don't share. Although you know, I think that you can sort of in, infer some of that just from the results of the primary. Yes. So, what do you think? Do you th- Twitter having an outsized role? But what do you think about the question of placating or addressing the concerns of the progressives? Maybe not progressive Twitter, but people who are four square behind. Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren? Should they feel their concerns really are getting addressed? Maybe not stylistically, but substantively. You know, a lot of their concerns have been addressed in the platform, but to some extent, I'm not sure how much we'll really know until there is a Joe Biden administration. We see things like who is the Treasury Secretary, right? Who is in some of these positions? I think that there's a lot of potential for progressives to make demands of Joe Biden and push the administration in the direction that they want it to go, right? I think that there's the potential to get a lot of what they want on green energy, for example. And, and you know, if not a Green New Deal, at least something that's sort of the foundation of something like that. But again, I just, I'm not sure how much we're going to know until we start to see what the actual Biden, you know, until we actually see a Biden administration shape up. So last thing I want to ask you about is this column you wrote less than a week ago, explaining why restoring the rule of law is not the same as lock her up, but headline after Trump, America needs accountability for his corruption. So my statement is I agree. And I don't think the fact that he, uh, he clearly broke the law in damaging ways should be discounted or whistled past. But my actual question is, in contemplating whether to put out this column, how much did you, you know, marshal the case against Donald Trump and argue for holding him to account legally because that's what the law requires? And to what extent did you calculate is this the right time to say it? Is this the message we should be giving? I have a big platform. Is this where I want the conversation to be going? Because a lot of the criticism is essentially, yeah, 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 but don't say it now. 
I actually think people need to say it now um, because I think you need to get at least some sort of commitments in that area, right? I mean, I don't think that it should be a centerpiece of the convention. I don't think it should be, you know, a chant at Joe Biden events if if there were public Joe Biden events. But I do think, you know, this is something, there's a reason that progressives are starting to put out these plans right now, right? There's a reason that the Center for American Progress, which is very close to the Democratic Party, has put this out. There's a reason that Protect Democracy is starting to do all this work. Um, And partly it's because, you know, when and if a Joe Biden administration starts, they're going to be, you know, mired in so many interlocking crises that there's going to be a lot of arguments, some of them persuasive not to do this, just as there were arguments not to do this with George W. Bush when Barack Obama came into office, right? And those arguments made sense at the time. He's facing an economic crisis, um, sort of this all hands on deck, the um, you know bandwidth of the administration is limited, He wants to move the country forward. He sort of ran on this kind of post-partisan, you know, bringing the country together. So all those arguments, you know, it's it's easy for me to see why they felt like those arguments were persuasive at the time. But you look at the result, it was just, you know, it created even more of a culture of impunity in the Republican Party. Um, And so it created a culture, I think, where the people who are, now enacting illegal schemes on Trump's behalf, probably feel very little compunction about what this might mean to their future careers. And so I think it's just, it's very, very important, you know, both for sort of justice for what we've been through, and and also just like a kind of some attempt at creating a baseline public understanding of what we've been through and what we continue to be going through. But also as an example for the next proto-authoritarian president. And this isn't just something that the Biden administration would be spearheading. And in some sense, it might not be something that the Biden administration is spearheading at all, right? It, It could easily, I think, maybe should take the form of an outside commission. It could be a special committee in Congress. And I, you know, I know that there's people in the House who are starting to think about what this could look like. And then there's just a bunch of investigations that are going on at the state level that just need to be allowed to proceed. But I do think that there should be a kind of baseline understanding in the party that there certainly can't be pardons, and that the next attorney general, you know, might need to, for example, we just learned that the Senate, that that this Republican-led Senate committee made criminal referrals for many people close to Donald Trump, and the Justice Department never apparently took them up. I think there should be an an expectation that the next Justice Department, you know, not that it's going to prosecute, but that it's going to investigate. Yeah. I do think for our democracy, it's in the abstract bad for each presidential election to be somewhat of a referendum on whether to indict the previous president. If we have successive presidencies and they're engaged in the project of locking up the last one, we're never going to function. That's in the I think that's I think that's right. But, but right, right now we sort of are just holding up these norms single handedly. So you, so so the Republican administrations come in and do prosecute their predecessors on totally specious bullshit charges. And then Democrats come in and say, you know, 
well, you know, we have to uphold these norms, so we're not going to prosecute or investigate actual systemic crimes. Um, and and there's no reason to believe that that is going to be reciprocated in the next Republican administration. I actually think that that is there's truth to that. I don't think that that's the most compelling argument. I think in the specific, there are exceptions to the rules of not prosecuting the predecessor. And I think Donald Trump very well might be the exception to that rule. We talk about norms, but norms are there when laws aren't. And when laws are there and they're being violated, that is something that we can't shirk our responsibility. We can't look at it. But you said the important thing to do about it now is to get those commitments. Uh, I understand that. That is a good strategy. On the other hand, by emphasizing that, it might imperil the entire entire project of getting elected. So let's say Joe Biden were asked this point blank. Would you prosecute Donald Trump if elected? What's his ideal answer? Well, no, he, he has been asked it point blank, right? And he sort of said, you know, I think it would be very, very bad for democracy, but I wouldn't stand in the way if the Justice Department decided to pursue something, right? I would have liked him to be maybe a little bit less negative about the whole thing. But I think that, you know, I don't want him to say, I'm going to direct the Justice Department to do this. Um, to me, the important thing is him saying, I won't stop the Justice Department from doing this. And I think all of that can be true. But I, I do worry a little bit about getting that out there because the Republicans need something to run on. And I don't think stronger showerheads are going to be it. If the whole thing becomes a referendum on, do elections become... Uh, prosecutions of the last guy. Maybe that will give some uh, wind in the Republican sales. Yeah, but it's not my, but right. But Mike, I don't have the power to make an election a referendum on my ideas. Um, you know, I don't think that there's any reason to think that this is going to rise that far in um, public discussion any more than there's, than this election is going to be a referendum on do we resurrect the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, right? These are questions that I think don't kind of capture the attention of ordinary voters evaluating the economy and the response to COVID, but they're going to be very important in terms of staffing up a new administration. And so I wish I had the power to, um, you know, set the agenda, but I, I obviously don't. Yeah, I guess my point is more, there's a little bit of that. I know you don't have the sole power to set the agenda, but if this becomes a big talking point, it could be bad for the Democrats. But that's a side point. My main point is, I think that you and I have a little bit of a difference in that I'm very, very, very concerned about the precedent, perhaps even as concerned as whatever it was that Trump did that deserves prosecution. Because, and part of my concern is that when people cite that we should have prosecuted George W. Bush, I actually disagree with that. I think he mostly operates, I mean, every president probably violates the laws. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't think, I, no, 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 I don't think we should have prosecuted George W. Bush. I think there should have been a, um, you know, something that Patrick Leahy and Sheldon Whitehouse um, proposed, some sort of truth commission, you know, just to kind of get the truth out there about about torture, about, you know, all, about about the origins of the Iraq war. I think that there should have been a, public airing of all of that, um, which is something that's very different than a prosecution. I don't think there were really grounds to prosecute 
George W. Bush. Yeah, but a lot of people do. And once those spirits are released, I mean, I interviewed Elizabeth Holtzman. You probably have, too. And she got a lot of attention because she introduced articles of impeachment against Nixon and uh, advocated that against Trump. And yet, if you look at her record, she introduced or favored articles of impeachment of every Republican president from Nixon to the present. So I do think that there is... Even Gerald Ford? Even Gerald Ford. I'll have to look back at that. (laughs) Every elected Republican president, I should say. Well... You know, I mean, I would say that's different than the argument that I'm making. And I think the argument that I'm making is that part of the problem is that there's been a lot of crimes committed by a lot of Republican presidents. But I also think that Trump has been qualitatively and quantitatively different. And there has to be a way to sort of underline that to, you know, to take this episode, if we're lucky enough to be able to and sort of cauterize it, right, to look at it as, um, you know, as much as I think that Trump in a lot of ways is a product of trends that have been going on in the Republican Party and the conservative movement for a long time, I also think that there should be a way to mark, if we can, you know, inshallah, these four years as as aberrant, as, you know, and, and kind of turn Trumpism into an epithet for, you know, for the foreseeable future. Michelle Goldberg is an opinion columnist for the New York Times. She's also a host of the Argument podcast, where not only does she stand athwart the Ross Douthit project of the entire conservative takeover, but sometimes if you let Bruni and Douthit have their way, they'll go all Catholic on you. And there is Michelle standing there to represent another side to that story. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader, Margaret Kelly. We should also note that the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Alicia Montgomery. Their grandmother is all through snakes at them for fun, which at the time seemed harrowing childhood nightmares, but they realized could play as humanizing day two DNC fodder. The Gist, you know, they sealed up the midnight drop box at the local library, and I'm wondering if a major Trump donor has been put in charge of reference and periodicals. Umpru de pru du pru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>